0: You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now on CNN.
1: Welcome back. We're live tonight from Charleston, South Carolina for a CNN Town Hall event. I'm Chris Cuomo here at the Memminger Auditorium. We just heard from President Trump tonight addressing the administration's response to the coronavirus as well as discussing the latest on the shooting at the Molson Coors Complex in Milwaukee. Of course, information still coming in, but we know one more tragedy to deal with. As of now, authorities say there are multiple fatalities. The alleged shooter also We'll continue to bring you any updates throughout the evening as we learn more. And of course, we'll be discussing the coronavirus as well as what is an obvious problem with gun violence in our society tonight with Democratic presidential hopefuls. Now we have former Vice President Joe Biden right here in South Carolina. So please help welcome to the stage the candidate who has said he will win South Carolina on Saturday, former VP Joe Biden.
2: Yeah, please. <laughs> it's your opportunity. All right, buddy, how are you? By the way, you know, when you come out here, the makeup artists put stuff on you, you know? I said, don't fool the ashes. My mother will come down from heaven and smite me. And I, and I know your mom, and I know what she'd do to you, too. So this was not a planned deal, but, you know... It's kind of a Catholic thing. Anyway, in the break, story.
1: In the break, we'll bump heads. Nobody will know. That's right. We'll come <laughs> All right, let's get right to the questions. Sure. Let's begin with the news of the day. The president just spoke about the administration's response to coronavirus. We have a question about this obviously dangerous disease. Let's bring in Tiernan Shea. Uh, she's from Kiowa Island, currently supporting Senator Warren.
2: Welcome. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. My question is, COVID-19 is a serious threat to our health and the economy if you were a president what would you be doing we've been through this once we've been through this with the the virus that occurred in ebola in africa i was deeply involved in that my administrative assistant was the guy who put together our answer And what we did was we were able to keep the disease overseas. The few that came to the United States, we were able to put together the following. We set up an office within the president's office to deal with infectious diseases. Number one. Number two, we significantly increased the funding for NIH, National Institute of Health, as well as the CDC to immediately begin to work on vaccines and which worked. We moved. Thirdly, what we did was we made sure that we were able to be honest with the American people so that we had a complete, a complete unity between the scientist and the president. In this case... Ron Klain, who was putting it together for the president. And so the only problem I have here is it doesn't seem as though and I didn't catch the whole I didn't catch the whole news conference. But what I saw was there was a slight difference between Dr. Fauci, who is a really first rate guy and the president's assertion. Don't worry, it's all done. As a matter of fact, while this was going on, there was A virus that occurred in the United States that was spread in the United States, not from someone coming from outside the United States. And so it is a concern. And I think it's important that we understand that you have to have a president in charge. The last point I'd make, and I know we want to get a lot of questions, is that what we did, what I would do were I president now, I would not be taking China's word for it. I'd insist that China allow our scientists in to make a hard determination of how it started, where it's from, how far along it is, because that is not happening now. And that should be we should be allowed to do that. And they should want us to do that because we have genuine experts who know how to confront these things. But we need to invest immediately. We should have done it from the beginning, the moment The virus appeared, but we're getting late. But we got good scientists, and I just hope the president gets on the same page as the scientists.
1: Uh, (laughs) Former Vice President, do me a favor comment on uh, the political implication from what the president said tonight. He blamed the Democrats of playing to advantage. He blamed by name Speaker Nancy Pelosi of trying to create a panic. That was his quote, and that the Democrats are just trying to get political advantage. Your response
2: Ash Wednesday. I mean, look, this, this well, I don't care who you're for. This is bizarre, absolutely bizarre. The president from the beginning is basically saying, don't worry, no problem, no problem here. And he goes and he takes away the office we set up that's designed to deal with pandemic disease. He eliminated it in the White House, number one. Number two, he tried to defund the CDC. He tried to defund the NIH. He did not have a plan to deal with how you equip hospitals that are going to be able to take care of people, to have the right docs, the right capacity, and the right ability to contain. None of that happened. And all Nancy's saying, I guess, I didn't hear what she said, but my guess is that we ought to be doing something. We should be funding this effort. I, anyway, I...
1: All right, let's get another question from the office. Kristen Susie is with us. She's a law student at the University of South Carolina, undecided voter. Welcome.
0: Hi. Hi. Good evening, President
1: Biden. Uh, in the South, the Second Amendment is a right that is held dear. How do, each of, how do you propose to sell your gun reform ideas to those who either own a gun or feel strongly
0: about protecting Second Amendment rights?
2: Two reasons. Number one, let, let's, you're a law student. I taught constitutional law for a long time. I taught the Second Amendment. And here's the deal constitutional amendment from the beginning. No amendment is absolute. None of you can stand up in the First Amendment of free speech and yell fire here. You'll be arrested because you're going to cause damage and danger. From the very beginning, the founder said not everyone is able to have a gun and you can't have any weapon you want. That's simply never been the case. There are limitations. I happen to have a 12-gauge shotgun and a 20-gauge shotgun because I haven't done it for a long time, but I skeet shoot and I'm not very good at it, I might add. But I have... I'm, but my sons, they bird hunt and they haven't in a while. My a lost one, anyway, they used to bird hunt. The point of the matter is that from the very beginning, you're not allowed to have any weapon you want. And those who say the tree of liberty is watered with the blood of patriots. You need an F-15 with Hellfire missiles in order to take on the government. This idea that you're going to need an AR-15 or any other assault weapon or you need any clip. Any clip that has 100 rounds in it is absolutely bizarre. You're a danger to yourself, if that's the case. Secondly, so so it it is no violation of the Second Amendment, period. And we didn't say anyone could own a weapon. From the very beginning, not anyone could own a weapon. So the idea that a terrorist could own a weapon, the idea someone who is in fact deranged could own a weapon, the idea someone who has a criminal background could own a weapon, that's why we worked very hard to pass the Brady Bill. I was the guy in the United States Senate at the time that moved the Brady Bill through and set up waiting periods. Set up waiting periods. Part of the problem here is that the idea that you need a weapon and you need it within 24 hours should shut off a Alarm bells for people. The fact is, it should be a five-day waiting period. So, so there's no, it's no infringement of the Second Amendment at all, at all. And by the way, I'm the only guy that's ever passed an assault weapons ban nationally. I'm the only guy that ever limited amount of bullets can be in a clip. And I'm the only person who has taken on their air and beat them across the board. And here's the deal: the deal is that nice percent of gun owners, of members of the NRA, think people should not be able to own an AR-15, not own a assault weapon, not have a hundred a, a a magazine, the thing you stick in the gun that. Shoots as many b- bullets as you can of a hundred rounds, so already the NRA people, it's the gun manufacturers, and that's another story I know you want to go on. Well I'm, I'll ask you a question about
1: that. Is it fair to continue to criticize Senator Sanders for his Brady Bill votes and the gun manufacturer liability cap vote? When he says they were bad votes, he made a mistake.
2: Well, look. Uh, <laughs> If you notice, they've never had any trouble going back in my record and figuring out every single vote I ever cast.
1: You don't like it either. Which
2: is okay. Yeah. But in my case and in his case, look, here's the deal. He, in fact, said he voted against. He voted for the assault women's ban when he, in fact, was running for mayor. He got defeated. Next time he ran, he didn't talk about the assault women's ban. He won. The idea here is that what is the thing that motivates you to make your judgments? And the idea that he's the only one up there who, in fact, in 2003, in fact, voted to give the gun manufacturers absolute license not to be sued at all. If I stood before you all and I said, I got a great as your presidential candidate, I promise you, I'm going to make sure you can never sue the drug companies. They put out nine billion opioids. Well, they can't sue them. You're never going to be able to sue the tobacco companies. And in the meantime, we talk about what you do to make up for those things. I haven't seen him. He's gone after every corporation in the world, which is I don't disagree on all of it with him. But he goes after every corporation in the world. But I've not seen him go after the gun manufacturers. And so here's the deal. What are you going to do about it now? Last point. The reason he voted against the Brady Bill five times that I was passing was the fact that it related to the waiting period. He thought you should be able to. If you can't get cleared within one day, you should get the weapon anyway. I think that is bizarre. I argued against that. I haven't heard him change the truth.
1: So in terms of what motivates votes and what postures you, we have a very important question from the audience about exactly that. Let's bring in Reverend Anthony Thompson, the pastor of the Holy Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Charleston, his wife, Myra was one of the nine killed in the shooting during a Bible study at Charleston's Emanuel AME Church in June of 2015. Reverend, we're sorry for your loss. Thank you for being with us tonight.
0: Good evening, Vice President Biden. You, along with President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, came to Charleston when this tragedy occurred. And you directly and personally came to encourage us. So thank you very much. The Emanuel the 9 tragedy showed that Charleston is separated and divided by racism. Mayor Tecklenburg formed a advisory council of pastors with different denominations and faiths to focus on reconciliation and cross-cultural awareness. He demonstrated his faith in the decision making of our, our city. My question is, what is your faith, and how would you use your faith and make a decision's for our nation?
2: Reverend, uh, I kind of know what it's like to lose uh, family. And uh, my heart goes out to you. If you may remember, after Barack and Michelle and I were there, my family, I came back on that Sunday to regular service because I had just lost my son. And um, I wanted some hope Because what you all did was astounding. I don't know if you all know this. All those who died were killed by this white supremacist. They forgave him. They forgave him. The ultimate act of Christian charity. They forgave him. And you know, Reverend, um, I'm not proselytizing. I happen to be a practicing Catholic. But I went back to the church because I found particularly the black church. In this case, it was an AME. It was not an Episcopal church. I found that um, there's that famous phrase from Kierkegaard, faith sees best in the dark. I find the one thing it gives me, and I'm not trying to proselytize. I'm not trying to convince you to be, to share my religious views. But for me, it's important because it gives me some reason to have hope and purpose I've learned the only way I don't know how you've dealt with it reverend but the way I've been able to deal with when my wife was killed and my daughter were killed and then my son died I, 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 I've only been able to deal with it by realizing they're part of my being my son Bo is my soul and uh, and what I found was I had to find purpose purpose and what was the purpose? Every day I get up, and I, I'm sorry to go on, I apologize, but every day I get up, I literally, and not a joke, Reverend, and I think you know this about my boy, that I ask myself, I hope he's proud of me today because he asked me when he was dying, promise me, Dad. Promise me, Dad. Promise me. He said, I know no one loves me more than you do, Dad. But promise me, you'll stay engaged. He knew I'd take care of the family, but he worried what I would do is I would pull back and go into a shell and not do all the things I've done before. It took a long time for me to get to the point to realize that that purpose is the thing that would save me. And it has. And every morning I get up and I say to myself, when I give you my word as a Biden, I hope he's proud of me. Hope he's proud of me. Because that's the thing that makes me move on. And the impact that loss had was astounding. And it had to be for you. Remember afterwards when I went down the next day when I came in that Sunday, and Mary Riley asked me whether I would go down in a, into Reverend Pinckney's office. And one of the things that absolutely blew my mind was he had a picture of he and I on his desk because we had become friends, we become good acquaintances. And it moved me in a way that I couldn't quite explain. But what it did it made me realize that, you know, to forgive is divine here. What you did, you changed. You, cha- you brought down that Confederate flag. You're the ones who changed the attitude in this state in a way that was profound. And I think that's how it gets done.
1: Mr. Vice President... Good place to take a break. We have a lot of questions from the audience. We'll be right back after a quick break. More questions for former Vice President Biden. Stay with us.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: back to a live cnn democratic presidential town hall we have former vice president joe biden let's get another question from the audience timothy simmons student at the university of south carolina leaning towards senators warren and sanders what's your question i'm not going to answer his question
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm, i'm only teasing i'm only teasing that's a bad joke yeah good evening you have criticized michael bloomberg for his stop and frisk policies in new york but you have not really commented on your 1994 crime bill. Are you aware of the impact that it had on the black community? Would you pass such legislation if it were to be introduced today? Let me tell you, I've commented on it a hundred times. I've been thoroughly, and it was endorsed by, let's get the context here. The crime rate was incredibly high. It did not put more people in jail like it's argued. It was supported by the Black Caucus and the black mayors across the country. There was no stop and frisk. It set up everything from drug courts to ban assault weapons to the Violence Against Women Act. It had things in it I didn't like. It had money for state prisons, which I opposed. But on balance, everything that was in that, I supported it. And and it provided for community policing. Not community policing got out and arresting people and throwing them up against walls. Community policing where you put two policemen in a car, the cops didn't want to do it, and they had to get out of the cars and go and understand the neighborhoods. They had to leave their, phone, their cell phone numbers with the local grocer, with the local church, with the local... If you have a problem, call me. They had to leave the numbers with women who, in fact, were single and, in fact, would see something going on outside their window and say, you can call me, we'll never reveal who your name is, so you will not have to be, you will not have to be the the subject of retribution by some drug gang or something. And so crime went down. Violent crime was cut in half. There was no stop and frisk under our proposal, number one. Number two, it was endorsed by, as I said, the vast majority of African-American mayors. The African-American community overwhelmingly supported at the time. Now, the talk about how it put so many people in jail, it had two provisions in it that, in fact, I opposed. One was three strikes and you're out. That was proposed by President Clinton. And the other one was uh, that that is was hij- uh, carjacking. That, in fact, I opposed both of those on the floor of the Senate, said I didn't want them in the bill. But at the end of the day, we had a bill that, in fact, had much more that was positive than negative. Then when we became the president's vice president, we cut the prison rate by 38,000 people. In the federal system, and I know you know this, and I assume you're the, the, the two people you're considering supporting know it, that 92 percent of every single prisoner is behind a bar in a state, a local or a a, a county prison, not in a federal prison. And the abuses that have taken place have been in the state prison system. And so thank you for the question. I hope that clarifies it. One aspect of the question,
1: Um, in terms of what we were talking about, Sanders, uh, and some of his votes, times change, context is different. If a bill like it was brought to your desk as President of the United States today, would you feel the same way you did in 1994? No, because
2: the circumstances, it was the right bill then, unlike voting to give exemptions to the gun manufacturer, was never a right vote under any circumstances. Being against the Brady bill was never right under any circumstances. It was right at the time. It cut the violent crime rate in half. In fact, it did not add to the federal prison population. It was, and matter of fact, the people who are arguing in the House were, among others, Bernie, saying we needed more money for state prisons. We didn't need any more money for it. Now, here's what I would do. I have laid out clearly what we should be doing. We should change the whole, the whole of the prison system from one of punishment to rehabilitation. Nobody, nobody... No, I really mean it. Nobody should go to jail for drug use. They should do what I set up in the law. Drug courts, they should be put in rehabilitation. Mandatory rehabilitation. We should be building rehab centers. 30 days, 30 days does not work. 30 days does not work of rehab. It doesn't work. Secondly, anybody in prison Anybody in prison should be learning a trade, should be being taught something. If you can't read, write, add, and subtract, you should be able to learn that in prison. And when you get out of prison, and this is what I proposed when I and way back with Arlen Specter, and that is when you get out of prison, instead of getting $25 in a bus ticket and you end up under a bridge, you should be able to qualify for every federal program from, from Pell Grants to housing across the board. It makes no sense. No sense to keep people a certain where they can't. So
1: that's it. Let's get another question. Claire Walford, associate professor of political science at the College of Charleston, currently undecided. Professor.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm
2: well, Professor. Sorry, I have a
0: little bit of laryngitis, so... um, That's right. I'm married
2: to Professor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to lose this opportunity. Um, So the votes of married suburban women are said to be critical to a Democratic victory this fall. Many of us, however, still remember the Anita Hill hearings all too well. Other candidates are being asked to account for past programs or policy choices they now regret. What do you say to those female voters who were and perhaps are still unhappy with how you handled the confirmation of Clarence Thomas?
2: Times have changed, so how have you? Well, by the way... I opposed Clarence Thomas from the beginning. I believed Anita Hill from the beginning. And I tried to control the questions under the laws that exist for the Senate. And I was unable to do it. Just like the last hearing, the last hearing they had, they were unable to control, keep people from being able to ask questions. What I did was, I made a commitment. I made a commitment, never again would the Judiciary Committee only have men on that committee. So I went out and I campaigned for two people. Carol Mosley Braun, an African-American senator from the state of Illinois, and Dianne Feinstein from California on the condition that if they won, they would join the committee. They'd become part of the committee. I kept that commitment. And secondly, I made another commitment that I was going to get the Violence Against Women Act passed, which I worked on and I wrote myself the Violence Against Women Act. Number three, number three, I've spoken with Anita Hill. And I apologize for not being able to protect her more. I'm trying to think. And I raised the question, for example. I raised the question. Should we, in fact, have those, those hearings in camera? And should that be the way to do it? When, because you're going to always be subject to being vilified no matter who comes and says, he said, she said, this happened. And I'm, so here's the deal. She said, and I think she's right, she said, no, it's better not to do that. We should have it in the open. So we got to find a way to change the rules as to what can be asked. But in a hearing, in a hearing, you're impossible to say you can't ask the question, for example. Anyway, I won't go into more detail. But look, I wish I could have protected her more. I publicly apologized, apologized then. And I was able to what she we owe her. We owe Anita Hill a lot because what she did by coming forward, she gave me the ability to pass the violent right and pass the Violence Against Women Act. We owe her a great deal of credit.
1: Stephen Smider is with us now. He's a student at the College of Charleston, currently undecided. Stephen. Hello. Uh,
0: welcome to Charleston, Mr. Biden.
1: Good to be back. Throughout your career, you have been an advocate for the moderate side
0: of the Democratic Party. At a recent debate, you did not raise your hand when asked if you or any of the candidates had a concern with a Democratic Socialist at the head of the ticket. After consideration, do you still feel you would support a Socialist at the top of the ticket?
2: Look, first of all, you know, it's amazing how things change. My entire career, I was viewed as a liberal liberal. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Check all these ratings about, you know, who's liberal, who's conservative. What's happened is... We have moved in a direction that, in fact, the progressive, now progressive means Bernie. It means democratic socialism or whatever the phrase is. I think Bernie is a decent, honorable man who means what he says. And I think, but I think it's going to be, it's not enough just to win, beat the president. The next president has to be able to win back the Democratic Senate. And let's just be, (laughs) let's real. And let's just be realistic here. It's not a criticism of him as a man. It's a criticism of whether or not you think you're going to be able to help elect a Democratic senator here against Lindsey Graham, which I'm going to help do. So, as they say, ask yourself the question. You're running for the United States Senate in Georgia, where we can win, in North Carolina, here in this state, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona. Do you think it helps you or hurts you to have a self-proclaimed socialist at the top of the ticket? I'm not being a wise guy. That's not going at his character. It's going at his position. It's a different role. And so we have to win back the Senate. And I might add, when we had the 2018 election, I went into 24 states, campaigned for a total of 68 candidates, the majority of whom were women. I said the in-politic thing, what you always say, Biden's no one ever doubts. I mean, what I say is sometimes say all that I mean. I indicated we we're going to win 41 votes and we're going to take 41 Republican seats. We did. But let me ask you, I was asked to come in and campaign. in them, from Alabama to Montana and in between in those deep purple states that we won. Did anybody ask Bernie to come in? It doesn't mean he's a bad guy. It means it's going to be hard holding on to the United States Congress and the United States Senate. And the last point I'll make, it's not about a revolution. It's about results. It's about results. Bernie's a great guy. But Bernie, and and, and he's, he's pricked the conscience of the country. It's really important. But Bernie and all the time he's been in the United States Senate, I think he's made he's passed seven or eight bills. Four of them really good. They relate to veterans and, and caring for veterans. A couple were post offices. I have the longest record of success in the United States Senate and as vice president passing major pieces of legislation. From the Violence Against Women Act to the Chemical Weapons Treaty to dealing with the, the when we got to the United States Congress, when we became vice president, first thing we had to do was keep the country from going into bankruptcy and going down the drain in terms of it was already in bankruptcy, keep it from going into depression. It was a $900 billion bill, the Recovery Act. We didn't have the votes. So the president said, find me the votes. I mean, I got three Republican votes, and then I managed that bill. So I'm used to doing things that are of consequence. I don't mean he's a bad guy. I don't mean that at all. But the next president's going to have no time for on-the-job training internationally and is going to be able to have to put the country together quickly.
1: Next question goes right to not having time to have on-the-job training for the next president. Uh, The questioner is DeVoe Stockton. He's a trial lawyer from Charleston, currently supporting Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Sir, yes. Well, Mr. Vice President, actually, I think you have my vote on Saturday after tonight. But I would like to ask you a question. Um, um, Sir, what is your plan if uh, Trump loses but refuses to concede based on... Allegations by his supporters of irregularities, and he refuses to step down as president based on those allegations.
2: I'm going to ask you all a rhetorical question. It's a serious question, serious concern. Did you ever think in your lifetime, no matter how young or old you are, any person would be able to ask that question to be taken seriously? No, I'm not joking. Our democracy is at risk. Four years of this guy. So the answer is the way he has treated the military, the way he has dismissed the intelligence community, the way he has absolutely undercut the FBI, the way he has gone after all these. I have no worry about him being escorted out of the White House.
1: Interesting. Interesting way to follow on this. It is not unusual for the president of the United States to watch our town halls. Um, Hearing something like that, communicating to to the audience, obviously important. If the president is watching right now
2: and he heard that question, what do you think he should know? Mr. President. (laughs) No, I'm serious. And he's probably watching. Mr. President. We have a democratic process. When the voters speak, they are heard and they have to be responded to. Now, if you're worried about somehow someone interfering on in our election, why don't you do something about Russian now?
1: Next question. Christian Conaty. He's a law student at the Charleston Law School of Law, currently undecided. Christian. Good evening, former vice president. I'm a 2L. I'm a 2L. All right, man. It's all yes, downhill sir. from here. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. I am born and raised in Wilmington, Delaware, and I'm a graduate of your high school alma mater, Archmere Academy. Go Aux. In Delaware and in South Carolina, education, specifically public, has drastically suffered over the years at the hands of poor funding and a lack of qualified teachers. What are some incentives that could help bring enthusiastic teachers back to the profession to help kids want to stay in school and further their education?
2: Well, first of all, By the way, the school he's talking about, he went to a private Catholic boy's school, and now it's co-ed. When he went, it was co-ed when my son and daughter went as well. The point is this, that the public school system in the country is in trouble, and in Delaware it's been in trouble, except Delaware did one thing that other states should be doing. Delaware said that every school is required to have a minimum amount of money no matter what their tax base is. That began to change the question of where the teachers are and where good teachers are. We are short right now 115,000 teachers in our public school system. Because my generation of baby boomers is retiring and other people aren't coming in. If you were gone to undergraduate school and you graduated magna cum laude with a degree in education, you start off at 23 percent lower salary than anybody else graduating any other discipline, except the one my daughter chose, graduating with honors from the University of Pennsylvania as a graduate student in dealing with the thing called idea that we have public service. It relates to whether or not you're a social worker. They get paid less. Okay? So, what we have to do is two things. One of the things we have to do is we have to provide opportunities. It shouldn't matter what zip code you're in, whether or not you have access to a good education. No, but... but, but But By the way, it's more than that. We've learned a lot in the last 10 years based on basic research. The basic research we know is the child's brain is developing very rapidly, beginning by age four, a significant portion is already developed. And so no matter what the background of the child, if they come from a poor background, no matter black, white, Asian, it doesn't matter. They, in fact, know now that if they are able to go to school, not daycare, at three years of age, four years of age and five years of age, they exponentially increase the prospects of them catching up and being able to go through all 12 years without getting in trouble. So I think it's 57 percent greater chance. So what I do, I go in Title I schools, those with very low tax bases, they don't have enough money. They don't have enough money that they need to attract teachers and school psychologists and the, and nurses, etc. And I triple that amount of money from 15, which is 15 billion dollars for Title I schools now to make up for deficiencies to 45 billion. That's allow the first thing you'd have to do if you qualify for that aid. You have to raise your teacher salaries to close to 60,000 dollars they've work in more than five years. Number one. Number two. You, in fact, are going to have to see to it that you provide for total education, school, all day school for three, four and five years old, because you put them in a position where they can compete no matter what their background has been. Thirdly, and this is the controversial piece of what and now, by the way, if you notice on the stage, everybody's talking about tripling, you know, title one. Uh, I'm glad everybody's come along. But here's the deal you should also provide for advanced placement courses in those Title I schools because we underestimate the capacity of students. Lastly, lastly, we've learned that if, in fact, you look, how how many of you in this uh, uh, folks are on school boards or involved with the school system? How many of you in South Carolina find yourself in a position where you have to make a choice between a school nurse and an additional teacher? Or between the school cycle, I'm not joking, am I? It's literal. And so, third thing to do is we should reward teachers who, in fact, are willing to teach in these schools. And we should deal with it. In, and I don't. Have to, I, I'm supposed to do these real short. I'm going too long. But we should be able to forgive student debt for them if they engage in the process. And so, there's a lot of things, but but we can significantly, and we should provide. Free community college for anybody who's qualified, those both coming back to learn something because a lot of people are losing their jobs because of technical changes that are taking in this fourth industrial revolution, as well as those who are qualified to go up. And we can do that now and it cuts in half the cost of college and it provides also opportunities for people to be able to choose other avenues that are able to work with their hands to learn trades and the like that all should be free.
1: Another question for you. Actually, it comes from a teacher, but it's not about the teaching experience. Lindsay Porcelli. Where we're coming she'd get the full Porcelli would be her name. But Lindsay (laughs) Porcelli, elementary school teacher here in Charleston. She's currently undecided, leaning toward you.
2: Lindsay. Lindsay, by the way, I may be Irish, but I'm not stupid. I married Dominique Coppa's daughter. Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, that's very um,
2: that's very funny. Um, and I also
0: have to say, I am no, I am actually a Title I teacher, so you won my vote on that. So thank you very much. Um, Mr. Vice President, I lost my father-in-law to a glioblastoma, just like your son Bo and your good friend John McCain. All of these men were veterans. What kind of VA support do you plan to give veterans who are now suffering from this incurable brain cancer?
2: Well, as you know and see that uh, more people are coming home from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with brain tumors and brain diseases than as a percentage in any other war in American history. Number one, there's reason to believe. if you have read the book Burn Pits, you ought to get a hold of it. It talks about whether or not just like the far, just like the firemen. In 9-11, how they have come back with with chronic diseases, immune system diseases, brain diseases because of exposure to the toxic fumes. Well, there's some reason to believe some folks have written. I am not I cannot swear to it now, but I'm going to make sure we research it as president. That part of the reason for this is because of the toxic burn dumps that are they think they build. As big as this auditorium, they dig a a big rectangle. It's about 8 to 10 feet deep, and they put everything in it they want to dispose of and can't leave behind. From flammable fuel to plastics to all range of things, and there's a lot of toxic smoke that goes up. And so that's number one, I'd look at that. But number two, we have to deal with increasing the availability for immediate availability for people who, in fact, are in the VA system to be able to get the best care possible, and right now we have, right now we have too many. We have too few psychiatric nurses, for example. To too many. There's more people committing suicide, 21 a week, that are veterans and or active duty service people because of post traumatic stress and other issues. But going to the cancer piece, what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what is done in the Defense Department for the the, for the Department of Health and for NIH. And I mean this sincerely. I did. the, The president asked me to do the cancer moonshot. I visited every major cancer hospital in the world, not a joke in the world, because this is a passion of mine, because I had access to being able to go anywhere in the world. I wanted when the president asked me to go research the cancer side of this. We found out that docs don't play well in the sandbox together. I met an awful lot of serious, serious researchers, and I met over 1,900 of them who are the ones who are doing the basic research. There's now 204 distinct cancers that have been identified, distinctly different cancers requiring different therapies. But we haven't been able to get things going until, I'm going to be very blunt about it, until the Biden Cancer Initiative came along, the president allowed me to do this, and that is that we've now found out that if in fact all this data is able to be shared and not hoarded, then in fact things change. Any of you in here are oncologists? Are any of you researchers? Well, if you'll find the oncologists know what happens when someone has a, has a a, 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 a a terminal illness. They don't come to you and say, "Doctor, cure me." They say, "Doctor, can you give me can you give me another month? I want to see the baby born." Doctor, can you give me another? another six months. I just got to get my things together for my family. Doc, whereas researchers bust their neck. They're in the lab. They're doing enormous work, but they don't have the same sense of urgency. They're working as hard as they possibly can. So we have to combine two things. One, when the president gave me the authority to to uh, uh, have access to the whole cabinet. Everybody wondered, why did Biden put together this group that had NASA as part of it? Well, guess what? NASA knows more about radiation than any doc in the world knows about radiation. And whether or not the damage done, as you know, from maybe your father and my son... When, what's, the, what's the present protocol? You go in, you find the tumor, you excise it, then you poison the system. You use radiation to try to kill the bad stuff, but you kill a lot of good stuff on the way in. And at the same time, you then have them on a cocktail that is basically a chemical to kill diseases. A lot of good stuff gets killed. As Dr. Agus here in, in Southern California would say, we're going to go down in history as having been barbaric the way we've done it. And so we have to do it a totally different way. And that's what's beginning to happen now. And here's the piece. We should allow veterans who, in fact, have coverage to be able to access the leading experts in the world no matter where they are, no matter where they are. And they really are different places. And so, you know, and, and, you know, not all presidents are created equal, not all teachers, not all docs. And there are some really, really fine, fine people who specialize in ways that they've had results that go beyond anyone else. And any of you, and I mean this at the bottom of my heart, not a joke. Anybody in this audience is dealing with that problem. If you don't think you need a second opinion, you want to know where to go for I promise you. Just I will stand here later and I'll give you a phone number and call because I have about 17 Nobel laureates that are working on. the. I can't do the Biden cancer anymore because you got to raise money for it. And I'm not allowed to do that. But I can get you to the people who are the best people in the world for specific for specific diseases. And we can now do a million billion calculations per second. So if you're able to take a cancer genome. You get that and you sequence it. You can identify the precise kind of cancer. And in a matter of minutes, it would take Nobel laureates a week or a month or a year to deal with. You're able to determine why the particular therapy for we have the same exact cancer, God forbid, it works on you, the therapy, and not on me. We can do a million billion calculations per second. So that's the reason why we have to take all these disciplines and working in a way that's different to prioritize also what we're going to work on. A lot more to talk about. If you want to talk about afterwards, I'll stick around and tell you what I want.
1: We can do it right now. We'll take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll have more questions from the audience of former Vice President Biden. Stay with us.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: presidential candidate, former VP Joe Biden. We have a question from the audience. Uh, David Karen. he's a lawyer from Charleston. He's leaning towards supporting you, sir. Thank you for your time, Mr. Vice President. Thank you. We've repeatedly heard about South Carolina being your
0: firewall state and commentators discuss at length just how important it is to your viability moving forward. My question for you is How would you characterize the importance of South Carolina's vote in this primary to your campaign and to your viability moving forward?
2: It's important to everybody's viability. Here's the deal you pick presidents. The Democratic primary here in this state picks presidents. You're the reason why Bill Clinton was elected president. You're the reason why Barack Obama was elected president because you represent a diversity of the population. Going into Super Tuesday, look, no Democrat has ever won the presidency without overwhelming support from number one, the African-American community, the most loyal support that exists in the Democratic Party. And I do not take it for granted. I've worked my whole life in the region and in, 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 in this area, but it, I'm here to earn that vote. Secondly, you have to be able to also attract high school educated People who have not gone beyond high school, who are in trouble in terms of their jobs, and they want to know what the base of the party is, as well as women, generically. And, folks, that's been the base of the Democratic Party. And that's what determines this state. You launch candidates for the presidency. in out of this state, you catapult us forward. And one of the greatest things for me is that I've had the great opportunity to come in here for a long, long time, working with all the communities Fritz Hollings, the guy and P.C. Hollings are the person who got me through a tough period of my life. When I read after I got elected, my wife and daughter were killed and my two boys were badly injured and I didn't want to come. And I remember Fritz saying, Joe, only 1702 people have ever been to the United States Senate. You owe it to your wife. Just come and stay six months. I thought he meant it. You know, he did. But my generic point is that. Everything we've done down there, I've been deeply involved. For example, the reason why the the Port of Charleston is working, I was able to put together almost a a half a billion dollars to provide rail connections from all your manufacturers in the north, from furniture all the way to Ohio, connect those rails to get them down to the port, dredge the port, improve the port, and now 111 jobs are out of there. So this is a place I know well.
1: All right, Mark Cohen Vice President at a local technology firm here in Charleston. He's currently undecided, leaning toward you. Mark. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Vice President Biden, what is your message for younger voters, um, high school student in college, just graduated, who on the whole are so attracted to Bernie Sanders? What about your platform and policies will have a positive impact on them, and what's going to drive them to vote?
2: Three things. Number one, the polling data just has come out, is that I get 30% of the vote, Bernie gets more, of the 18 to 28-year-olds. Uh, but of the, those are the, the, the early millennials, the ones who came at age when Barack and I were in, in, in the White House. I get over 45% of those folks. So the idea that I don't get millennials and I don't get the young vote is not accurate. But number two... One of the things that look, this is the best educated generation, the 18 to 25 year old vote, in American history. It is the most, it is the least prejudiced, it is the most involved, and it is the most capable generation based on their electoral their their historical and their academic records. But here's the deal. Up until recently, they have not gotten engaged in voting. Had, in fact, that same generation voted the same percentage the rest of the population did in 2016, there would have been 5 million 200,000 additional votes. So here's the point I say to all the young people: you, you, the young people today, you can own this election. I really mean it. You can own the election. And the great thing that's happening now, and Bernie deserves some credit for this, is we've been generated this kind of enthusiasm. But let's get it straight. The person who really generated the enthusiasm among young voters was Barack Obama in 2018. And so it's not a criticism of Bernie. It really isn't a criticism of Bernie. I think, and here's what I do. Number one, make it clear to them. Number one. That, in fact, education is going to be the bellwether in the 21st century. The idea you can make in the middle class and sustain yourself there with just 12 years of education is not accurate. Whether you need to trade and or you have to go beyond that. Number one, you know that in terms of technology. Number two, we should change the way we educate our people. For example, why isn't in every school, why isn't programming part of the science curricula that satisfies your science requirement? Why don't we do that? Why don't we, in fact, continue? uh, Why don't I stop? No, no, listen. This this is the last answer of the night, so go ahead. Okay, so here, and in addition to that, it's about being able to know that you are going to be able to be physically secure. The idea, we have to restore the soul of this country. I'm not for real. The is a good time to end. All right. Mr. Vice President, thank
1: Thank you very much. I've done a lot of these. I've never seen anybody stand as close to the edge as you do (laughs) on a
2: regular basis. I thank President Biden.
0: And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts.